everyone, and welcome to the show. This is episode number 18 of Pop Culturally Deprived, and today we're going to be talking about Dead Poets Society on your Oh Captain, My Captain podcast. I'm Mandy Kay. And I'm Matthew Vos. Today's super fan is Alan Alstrom. Alan is also a fellow fan of story and podcasts. In fact, Alan has recently launched a podcast called Shadows and Shamblers, an American Gods podcast. Welcome to the show, Alan. Damn it, Mandy. The name's Nawanda. Told you. Pardon me. <laughs> Pardon me. Nawanda. Right. No, thanks for having me on the show, you guys. I'm very happy to be here. I love this movie. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. I, I feel like I'm going to have to say sorry. Um, we're going to have some conflicting, we're going to have some conflicting opinions in this one, um, but we are going to come out of this as friends. Oh, that's fine. That's what makes these so interesting. You know, if we all had the same opinions, life would be very boring. Right. Exactly. So a lot of people keep asking me, how have you never seen Dead Poets Society? And overwhelmingly, it was interesting. Whenever we posted that this was coming up and that we were going to be recording on this soon, I always got two responses. Either people also had not seen it, or it was people who raved about it and said it was one of their all-time favorite movies. There was never anybody in between, which I think is very interesting. And now that I've seen the movie, I honestly, I have no idea why I never watched it before. I was an English major. I was a book blogger. I love the English language and poetry and learning and high school. And I just don't know why I never saw it. It's an utter travesty that I didn't get to watch it before. Yeah, I think this isn't a film that anyone's going to hate or turn around and say, oh God, that's a bloody awful film. I think at worst it's going to be ambivalence. So they're just not going to say anything. Well, Roger Ebert may have had slightly different opinions <laughs> than that, which we'll get to in just a minute. He's, he's paid to be provocative, so he's allowed <laughs> If you read Ebert's stuff, he, you know, he's very much more about popcorn movies and stuff like that. He will mm. usually recognize like when something important happens in the, you know, in a in a movie where it kind of shifts the paradigm or something like that, but most of the time he's much happier watching Star Wars, Indiana Jones, and this is just not that kind of movie. This is this movie is kind of preachy and I think he resents that. You know, if you if you read his review, he really doesn't like to be told, like, this is important and you should care. Okay. Yeah. Dead Poet Society is an American drama that was released on June 2nd, 1989. It was written by Tom Schulman based on his own experiences in prep school and directed by Peter Weir. It was the fifth highest grossing film of 1989, bringing in $235 million at the box office. Nominated for four Academy Awards, it won for Best Original Screenplay. The other categories it was up for were Best Actor in a Leading Role for Robin Williams, Best Director, and Best Picture. Now, Rain Man won Best Picture that year, and it probably would have been tough to beat, though admittedly I haven't seen it. <laughs> it did win the BAFTA Award for Best Film that year. Dead Poet Society is also ranked as number 52 on AFI's list of the top 100 most inspiring films. While the movie did receive a generally favorable response from the critics, Roger Ebert only gave it two out of four stars. He thought Robin Williams spoiled his performance by too often allowing his comedic persona to shine through. Both Siskel and Ebert disagreed with Williams' Oscar nomination, and Ebert suggested that either Matt Dillon or John Cusack should have had the role. 
Furthermore, he was of the opinion that the Best Picture nomination was the worst nomination of the year. Which is pretty harsh. Yeah, shots, shots fired from that one. Man, Matt, Matt Dillon. Yeah, well, crazy. I'm floored at John Cusack. There's, in 1989, John Cusack could yeah. not have pulled this off. I'm sorry. Yeah, I can't even imagine. Like, maybe John Cusack? I was like, what is Matt Dillon going to do? That's weird. That is a weird suggestion on his part. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did read a thing that at one point Dustin Hoffman was attached to both direct and star. And that I could have seen. Yeah, Definitely. I could have seen that. Yeah. But not John Cusack no. or Matt Dillon, honestly. I haven't seen very much of Matt Dillon. When I think of Matt Dillon, I think of wild things. Yep. That's, yeah. <laughs> uh, one of the greats. He said. <laughs> Because he said, you know, like he should be a teacher, and that's what I thought of. I was like, oh, no, 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 <laughs> right. Mm. So, if you're listening to this and like me, have never seen this, then I bet you're probably wondering what Dead Poet Society is because you know the name doesn't really tell you anything. Um, Dead Poet Society is about a class of teenage boys who are inspired by their new English teacher, and also sadness. And nobody prepared me for the sadness, you guys. So I want to prepare you. This movie is sad. We do like to take a moment and, and let everybody know how we watch the film in case you haven't seen it and would also like to watch it. I had an interesting little timing thing. I was very frustrated with my cable company and ended up on hold for a really long time and was threatening to cancel and just, you know, had my call escalated and escalated and escalated and eventually ended up with a supervisor who offered to lower my bill and also give me some extra channels. And one of the channels was Cinemax and Dead Poet Society happens to be available on demand on Cinemax. So I would not have been able to watch this movie for free before last week, but timing, crazy random happenstance, I was able to watch it on Cinemax On Demand. Well, lucky you. It is on nothing over here. It's not on Netflix. It's not on Amazon. It hasn't been on Sky in a very long time. Um, I have had to pay Google some money to be able to rent this for a few days. Oh, I no. think that's fair. <laughs> Alan, how did you watch? It is one of the many, many, many DVDs that I have. I don't have a problem. I could stop any time buying DVDs. Uh, <laughs> I have shelves and shelves of DVDs, and this is one of my favorites, and it sits there very comfortably with all of my other Robin Williams movies. So that's how I have it arranged. And it is the first one, because it's my favorite Robin Williams movie. Oh, okay. Quick sidebar, how do you arrange your DVDs? It is a mental map, so it is nice. crazy. It's it's not in any kind of order. Yeah, it's just like sometimes it's like like the Robin Williams section. It's all Robin Williams stuff and it's, you know, it's all mixed up. But then other places it's like these are all Marvel movies or these are all action movies or these are all sad movies. You know, it's it's pretty crazy. Nice. I like that. Very personal collection. Yes. So, Mandy, there were surprises in this film, certainly for you. What were your expectations before you saw anything? I was not emotionally prepared for this movie. <laughs> not expecting me to need to be emotionally prepared for this movie. I honestly expected it to be like Stand and Deliver, where it was about a teacher who comes in and inspires everybody, and, you know, he probably does get in trouble and have to leave at the end. That's how these things go. I had no idea that there was going to be teen suicide in it. Nobody warned me. 
and it just I wasn't prepared. But you knew, did you know it was a, it was a drama or did you think like Robin Williams, it's going to be a comedy, it's going to be kind of wacky or? No, I knew, I did know that it was a drama. Um, I knew it was inspirational and I, I was actually familiar with, uh, you know, the bit where he's walking around talking about, you don't use the word very, you don't say a man is very tired. You say he's exhausted. That that's a clip that I've seen before. I don't know where, probably in school or something. Uh, so I just thought it was going to be an inspirational, uplifting story about a teacher who comes in and changes the lives of his students. And I didn't really expect it to be anything other than that. Okay, so it was directed by Peter Weir, who has done some tremendous films over the years. Uh, have you seen any of the others that he's done? The only other Peter Weir film that I've seen is The Truman Show. Which I love. Which which is one of them. That is a terrific film. And uh, lead actor in this was Robin Williams. What else have you seen him in? Um, particularly this sort of less comedic of his roles. This is going to surprise some people, I think, because I'm actually super familiar with Robin Williams, <laughs> even though I haven't seen anything ever. Um, I have seen Good Morning Vietnam, Hook, Mrs. Doubtfire, Jumanji. He was in Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet. Goodwill Hunting, Patch Adams, What Dreams May Come, Bicentennial Man, and then, I mean, of course, some of the comedies like Jack and, well, Jack is sad though, Flubber. Um, he, he was also in AI and he was the silly crazy dad in RV and he was Theodore Roosevelt in Night at the Museum. You know, so I, I do actually have a lot of experience with Robin Williams. And of course, I have seen him in Morgan Mindy. Yeah, which was the the big thing he'd done before coming into this. I think maybe Good Morning Vietnam as well. But yeah, I think he was going through a period of, I'm not just Mork for Mork. <laughs> okay, that makes sense. Um, and having seen it now, did you actually enjoy the film or are you just overcome with sadness? It, I liked the movie. I, I don't think I can say that I enjoyed it because it's a movie that ends in teen suicide and I, and I can't enjoy that. But I will say it was an incredible movie. And I'm glad to have seen it. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah. All right. I was getting worried. I was, I was like, nope, this is a terrible movie. It, <laughs> so no, no. Good. Uh, I am glad to have seen it, and I would watch it again. And actually, I kind of want to watch it again to see if I perceive any of the beginning of the movie differently now that I know how Neil's story is going to end because I wasn't expecting that at all and so i think i was kind of watching it from a happy-go-lucky perspective if you watch yeah if you watch again and you watch neil there are all kinds of little interesting moments that aren't exactly foreshadowing but like if, when they talk about death at different points the look on his face and the way that they play it the, the camera work it's it's much more interesting when you rewatch the movie and you pay attention to neil I think my response to the film is um, a little different. It, it's kind of hard to put into proper proper words and proper context. I find it a little formulaic. Uh, like you were saying, Mandy, it's uh, a, quite a well-trodden story about a teacher who comes in and inspires students. And the way it's often told, there is usually some... The, the old thing of into every life a little rain must fall. That moment in the film, there's uh, something happens to the teacher, the someone in the class, the school, the building, something like that. I think I've been I've been thinking about this a lot over the last few days, knowing we were going to have this conversation, trying to think 
what is it in this film that I think could have been done better or differently? And I think there's two aspects to it. One is the setting, this preparatory school for young white men who are going to go on and be the future leaders of America, um, which I'm sure could well be the same school that Butler goes to in, um, in two cathedrals. Right. <laughs> it absolutely looks and feels the same. But other films that do this same story usually take it on uh, some sort of diversity angle, some sort of dealing with people who aren't privileged white men. And not even privileged white men, these chaps are very intelligent in the first place. And and one of the, the good things about the film is the way that it's it treats what he teaches them. Because he's not really teaching them anything. His teaching is pretty atrocious when it comes to English literature. But what he, he openly says is he's trying to teach them how to think in a non-conformist way. How to actually think for themselves. And he, he uses some of the poetry writing to do that. But it is about not going with the crowd. About looking at things from a different angle. Which is a, a really nice approach. Because for these guys, learning poetry is not important. They do not care about this. So in some ways, teaching them the depth of how to analyze and understand and write poetry is, is never going to be an important thing. But when you look at other films that certainly that came after it, things like uh, Dangerous Minds or Renaissance Man, but even before it with To Serve With Love or Educating Rita, they, they have other elements to the film uh, that this just doesn't have. True, but okay, well of those films you just mentioned, I've only seen Dangerous Minds. Okay. And, I mean, Dangerous Minds is set in a different time for one you know it's it's a more modern hmm. i mean it was the 90s so i don't know that it's so modern but it was more modern than 1959 but the writer was actually basing this on his own experiences in prep school and hmm. so that's that's why it was set the way that it was set so i i can't fault it for that you know just this last time watching this movie and it made me think of it, Matthew, because you're talking about having another element or like Dangerous Minds is based on, I think that's based on an actual teacher, isn't it? Or uh, yes. a, a, yeah, just this last time watching it, I did sense an agenda in the movie that I've never perceived before. And hmm. I'm not totally sure about this because, you know, I just noticed it this time, but it felt like... Because these, this is the baby boomer generation, right? These kids. Mm. And it felt like it was from the baby boomer perspective, kind of answering back to the greatest generation and saying, hey, you guys are too strict. You're, you were a bunch of fascists. You never let us be us. You tried to control everything and we had to rebel. Like this is right before the 1960s before the, you know, like the Berkeley revolution, the intellectual revolution and stuff like that, where everybody, the, the counterculture, you know, where they're pushing back and trying to, I don't know, expand the boundaries of what's okay, you know, before the free love movement and all that stuff. These are the rumblings that are in there. And it felt, it just felt very baby boomer to me, this whole movie this time. I've never really sense that before and i i don't know i don't know where i don't know where it goes i think it's just so much in the writer's perspective that it's like baked in there i don't know that it's totally on purpose or trying to say something specific but he was like i'm a baby boomer you guys were jerks this is how i feel about it all if that makes sense yeah i can completely understand that he's it, it is a different generation certainly than the three of us 
and speaking very much to a period of time where American culture was changing quite a lot. Yeah, and and since I don't have like any deep love or sympathy for the baby boomers, I was kind of like <laughs> looking at the whole thing at a remove, going like, yeah, you're you're being a little whiny and self righteous here, and uh, <laughs> and you guys have a bill to pay too, you know. One thing I will say is this movie kind of made me mourn the education system because looking at this movie and the things that they were taught, I mean, they were in high school and they were taking like standard trigonometry and straight poetry and just things that we don't do anymore. Not at least not in high school. Those would be things that, that you would take as a, a college course, a university level course. And so it just, it really did make me mourn for our education system because it's clear how much it's changed since even the 50s. And they're like speaking Latin and Greek. And uh, yeah, I've always noticed that. But, you know, at the same time, it's kind of private school. So you assume that these guys and they're they're like cloistered. These guys don't have anything to do, mm. it seems to me, except, you know, read books and study. And uh, those teachers are like, are, are they living in the same building as the teachers? I, c I can never figure this yeah. out. But it. They are. Yeah, it seems that way. I think so. And so yeah. it's like, if you're not studying, like, what what are you doing? Get in your room and study. So, I mean, they better be smart. Yeah, it's yeah. funny because in the beginning of the movie, as soon as they all got to school, the first thing they started talking about was study group tonight, study group tonight. And so in my brain, I'm sitting here thinking, oh, these are teenage boys. This is just, you know in quotation marks, study group, what are they really going to be doing? Are they going to be looking at dirty magazines? Are they going to be smoking? You know, th that's just what they're calling it, right? So that they can blow some steam off. No, they're actually talking about studying. <laughs> <laughs> and I was a little, I was a little thrown off by that because it wasn't what I expected. But I don't think they have anything else to do, you know? Which is, I think, why the Dead Poets Society appealed to them so much. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't know that it was actually the poetry itself. It was, you know, being a rebel, doing something that's countercultural to the school culture, going and sitting in a cave. You know, I mean, just it, sitting in a cave is exciting and adventurous when all you can do is sit in your room at school. You guys, you know? we're going to go to a cave and read books instead of in our room. It's going to be, <laughs> we're going to be so mighty, you won't believe it. Yeah, I, I think a, a little bit of that is true. And um, it just, I, one of the things that I wrote in my thoughts doc was that these were the most mature 17 year old boys I've ever seen in my life. And I don't know if that's just because it's fictional, or if it's because this takes place in 1959 at a boys prep school. And so it was a different culture. Yeah, very much when you get to the point where he's being beaten with a cricket bat by the head. Yes, that is a very different culture of school. Well, okay, so I got paddled in school once. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and that would have been in the eighties. I mean, it was it was a it was a private school. It was a, a Christian school, but corporeal punishment or corporal punishment was <laughs> yeah ghostly <Both>. punishment. <laughs> uh, corporal punishment was still you know allowed. Okay, and and my parents let that happen and so I didn't see like that didn't freak me out very much because it wasn't something that was just completely out of out of bounds for me. I went to a private school and I got paddled. So yeah. It happened. That kind of stuff was still happening. I went yeah, that was in the late eighties at a public school, so that kind of stuff was oh, still wow. happening in America. Yeah. 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 
Absolutely. Not, I, not anymore. I, I'm pretty sure no, that that's, yeah, that's all gone now, but. I'm pretty sure it's illegal now. <laughs> yeah. It was a different culture back then, but I think part of it is, uh, you know, this is just part of fiction in general where people are very articulate and you have in a movie, you have a limited amount of time. So these people need to say what they're going to say as succinctly as possible. And uh, it's kind of like in Pulp Fiction, you know, the the thugs talk in a way that is <laughs> not realistic at all. They're very articulate. And so I think these boys are just down to earth because we have an emotional arc to get them over and we have two hours mm. to do it. You know. Okay, I think that's fair. So I got into a conversation on Twitter because I asked the question, who is the main character in this movie? Because I still don't know. And even after talking uh, both to Carla and Kate, Carla is at Acorn Carla and Kate is at Katie Sheru, both of them think the main character is Todd. And I just don't think I can agree with that, but at the same time, I can't come up with an alternative. My instinct is to say it's Neil, but if it was Neil, it would have ended before the movie did. And so what do you guys think? Who, whose story are we telling in, in this movie? I think that uh, this is a little bit like a sports movie where, and this doesn't totally apply to all sports movies, but you kind of have a, a collective protagonist in this movie. All of the boys are the Dead Poets Society. And the Dead Poet Society is the protagonist of the movie, in my opinion. It goes, you see the origin of the club, and then we watch what happens to each of the members, and then we watch the club fall apart at the end. And so this is kind of the birth, the life, and the death of the Dead Poet Society. And Neil doesn't make it all the way through the movie, and I think that he's the linchpin of the group. He's, you know, kind of the beating heart that brings them all together and leads them, but it's not any one character's movie. I think it's about the group in general. And the school is the antagonist in that case. It's not necessarily the headmaster. It's not the parents. It's kind of the collective adult culture that stands against it. So where does Keating fit in? I would say he's kind of the bridge between those two worlds. And for that reason, he can't he can't make it through the movie. You know, he's kind of, uh, there's like, there's kind of a theory to storytelling that you can't have a story with two characters. You have to have at least three. And I think that's what Keating is. He's kind of the third person. If you're going to have the adults on one side, the dead poet society on the other, you kind of need that third character to swirl around and mix. He's got a, he gets ping ponged between the two sides uh, until he's out of the game at the end. Okay, I think that that's a great answer. Yeah, absolutely on point that this is an ensemble piece, um, and it's about everyone's different journeys through it. But I think this is where my other issue with the film comes in, that it doesn't know whose story it wants to tell. Because Neil is, I think, the closest thing I'd say to having a protagonist, not necessarily main character, but he's the one who, certainly that last act, it's his actions that drive everything through. He's the one, the, the inciting incident, as it were. But the film wants to be the story of a teacher who comes in and inspires students. But there's not enough of that because it's about what the students go and do and their interactions with the world outside. It wants to be about Neil, but Neil shoots himself, so his story is entirely over. So, And, and like you say, it goes on after that, and there's still more of the, the story to tell at that point. So that doesn't really fit. 
and potentially it wants to be about Todd. And I think that the fact that the film closes with that really weird shot of Todd on a desk, but being shot through another boy's legs, um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a really strange way to end it. But the fact it has this long lingering shot of him and we can see the, the arc that he's taken. Yes, it, it wants him to be the main character, but it doesn't give us quite enough time for any of them. And it spends its time doing things that the boys making the radio and having a dance. You know, we have a couple of scenes around that. We have the the thing with Knox and the girl and the girl's boyfriend, which also doesn't come to anything. I don't feel like it was Keating's inspiration for him to go and ask her to the the play. And even if it was, they go to the play, but nothing comes of it after that we don't get the sense that they're going to be together forever there's more of that story to tell somehow and i wonder if was there a sense of guys we need to get a woman in here somewhere <laughs> let's put in some sort of plot so we can cast a female <laughs> i did not get that feeling from it at all i hmm. think i think that when you're looking at this the way that that alan has laid it out as if we need to kind of see what's going on with all of the members of the Dead Poet Society, because collectively they are what the story is about, then it makes sense because no- Knox's arc goes from not even, I mean, he falls in love with this girl when he hasn't even really spoken to her, yeah. you know? And then he goes through all of these steps and series and it, it culminates before before the play. That That's kind of like the, what's the word for what happens after the climax? The denouement? Yes. Yes. So the, the climax to me was when he showed up at her school and barged into the classroom and just, you know, professed his love in front of everybody. And then when he goes back to his school and he's telling, you know, all the boys are asking, well, what did she say? What did she say? Nothing. Nothing. What do you mean nothing? Nothing. That's what I needed. It wasn't about him getting the girl it was about him growing and being strong enough and being brave enough to actually act on his passion and i liked that about him it it was never actually about the girl which is why it doesn't matter that we don't know what happens after they hold hands the play but i may be alone in that i no i really like knox's story especially that part because he's not being a creeper <laughs> yeah. like stroking girls on the head that he he's only met for the second time and uh oh, and kissing dude. them gently i i really noticed that part this time i was like oh not no dude but i guess that mm-hmm. it makes sense though for these boys who are like they don't know anything about women they're not allowed to be around women and then not that that makes it okay but uh but i do like the arc that he gets where he gets punched in the nose after that because he should have been and then he uh you know, he goes to the school and I think there is a moment when he goes to the school where and that that feels like he's putting a lot of pressure on her. But there's that moment where she goes into the classroom and he's not even in the shot. It's like right over his shoulder and he's kind of standing there and you almost feel that moment of decision from him The of am I going to go in there? Is this going to be carpe diem or am I going to leave? And I think the old Knox would have left, but he seizes the moment he goes in there he says what he has to say and then he leaves because that's that's all he could do carpe diem because tomorrow you might be dead <laughs> and for real you knew i was movie. gonna get that in there right oh <laughs> <laughs> that hurt my heart <laughs> okay 
the the other thing that was quite interesting was watching the trailer for this because the trailer makes it look like those other films that I talked about. It's about here's this school with this very old world ideology, and suddenly this teacher comes in. Oh, and it's Robin Williams, and he te- and it's all the little clips of him teaching them things and the spinning round for for learning the poem and going outside and kicking soccer balls and so on. And it makes it look like it's about the inspiration of the teacher. And like you say, it's not fully because the club, the the Dead Poets Society itself is a big thing for them and and learning through embracing poetry, through going and doing something different. And then the fact that the teacher goes off at the end, we we have that Rudy moment of everyone standing up for or lots of guys standing up for him. But we don't know the rest of his story. So that's sort of left hanging quite a lot. Oh, then he goes to Vietnam and he, uh, it's yes. a radio <laughs> he's station. He's a radio announcer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you, Matthew. Uh, I think the movie does have a lot of problems, even though I, I love this movie. Like I can intellectually, I can see the problems. There's, like I said, there's kind of a tone to it where it's a little bit preachy. It's a little bit like you didn't understand us. And at the same time, it's, I don't, I don't know how to say it. Like, it's a little bit too romantic, but I don't know. You kind of want your fiction to be, you want it to be bigger than big, especially if you're talking about romance and, you know, the romantic poets and stuff like that. But mm. I recognize that it has problems, but I love it anyway. Yeah, there is some real quality in here. Um, and we'll obviously be picking that up very, very shortly, I think. I, I say I'd spent quite a lot of time thinking about this. There's one other film that I haven't mentioned on the list so far. Uh, that it really reminds me of in a lot of ways, called The Prime of Miss Jean Brody. It's a very old uh, Maggie Smith film. And I've never even heard of it, but if it's, it's got Maggie Smith in it, then I'll go look it up. Yeah, it is absolutely delightful. She is a teacher at a, a girls' school in Edinburgh, um, and she even has, has a bit where she talks and she goes, um, Girls, I am in the business of putting old brains on young heads. All of my pupils are the creme de la creme. <laughs> and, and it has this whole plot about her helping educate these girls. Now, the education she gives them isn't necessarily the most appropriate. We would argue that the politics are quite wrong for these for uh, a modern sensibility. But the core of the film is actually about her relationships with the other teachers, with men, the the growth of the girls, and then them returning to her when they're a little older. Um, and it, eventually, it's actually the fall of Miss Jean Brodie, to, to spoil a very old film. Okay. Mm. So that sounds like it's it's more about the teacher then. Yes, than this and, and yeah, that's that's what when I think when I think back on Dead Poets Society, uh, certainly before watching it again this time, I remember Robin Williams being a significant point to it. But actually, he he doesn't have too much of a story or an arc. He wants to come in and give this education. He gives the education, and he ends out ends up slung out for it. Um, but I never got too much of a sense of conflict within the school. There's there's a couple of lines in there about it but they're still letting him carry on. It's only when there's a very significant incident that they use it against him. Yeah. And again, I feel perhaps we could have spent a little more time on that and giving him some sort of arc and, and perhaps even a sense of what he's going to go and do now. But very much towards the end of the film, he's not really in it. And then he just comes and picks up a scarf and, and totters off. Yep. I think I, I hesitate to say this because I do like the movie and this is going to make it sound like I don't, but from a writing perspective, this movie really isn't about anything. When you look at it as a whole, there's no like singular plot. There's no conflict that actually needs to be resolved, that gets resolved in the movie. But I think that appeals to me 
in, in a way because I like watching movies that just take me out of my life and plot me in the middle of somebody else's. And I feel like that's what this movie does for me. Yeah, and perhaps if it had had some real climax for one of the characters, except for Neil, some, oh, and Todd is now going to go off and be the president, and he's going to go and be a great president, or, oh, shock horror, this guy is actually Ronald Reagan. Um, or we have a sense that <laughs> the teacher is going to go on teaching in some sort of quality. Yeah. Honestly, I really wanted this movie to end. I I didn't expect it to end where it ended, and I thought that we would get a scene at the end that, that takes place, you know, like 20 years in the future and they're all mm. coming back together and like the Dead Poet Society is reunited and, and like somehow Keating is there. Like in my head, I had worked out this whole thing in the future that they're all successful and they're all great and they all come back and like credit Keating with it. And I wish that they had ended it that way because then it, it, it would have been a more inspirational movie than it was. It's like the the end. Well, you probably haven't seen this movie. It's like the end of uh, uh, American Graffiti, which has a weird mm. ending to it. Have, have you seen that, Matthew? Yeah, <laughs> a night in the life of. Right. I, yeah. I exactly. Well, just at the end, it just shows like a shot of each of the characters, and then it has these really weird written postscripts about each of them. They're like, and he went off to Vietnam and got shot in the head. And it's like, whoa, wait a minute. And then and then another character is like, he went to college and he became the CEO of this company. And you're like, what the? These guys were all just drag racing in the night. What is going on? <laughs> okay. That's pretty yeah. weird. Mm. So there's that scene in the movie where they try to plot the significance of a poem. You guys remember that, right? Yes. Do you hmm. think that art and writing can be objectively measured at all? I think art and writing are two different things. Actually, well, writing is a form of art, so crap. Um, yes. Yes and no. <laughs> How about that? Yes and no. That is not a satisfactory I answer. <laughs> I think quality can be objectively measured, but meaning cannot be. Oh, that's better. Okay. Okay. And I'm not 100% sold on that because I'm thinking, like, can you really objectively say whether a painting is good or not when there are paintings out there that are literally just a canvas of one single color that gets sold for a million dollars? You know, so I, the close, that that's the closest I can come is that quality can be, but meaning can't be, but I, I don't know. It, it's, it's a tough question. Can art be objectively measured? No. No, it cannot. Not even a little bit. This this podcast is proof of that. Otherwise, we would just listen to last week's episode and go, right, Mandy's wrong about Superman. <laughs> <laughs> that, that piece of art is superb. And anyone who says otherwise is wrong. No, um, hey, you agreed with me on some of that. <laughs> it's it's uh, still, still 2017. This is a topical question. This is um, particularly for video game reviews. This idea mm. of, can you ascribe a number to an experience? Can you compare the, the graphics on game A and, and game 2 and say one is objectively better than the other? Can you, can you say the experience is better? You can say that game A is much better because you have 100 hours of experience, whereas game B lasts for two hours. But actually, uh, there's a lot of two-hour games that I've played that are better than the, the 100 hours of multiplayer of Halo that I've probably put in somewhere. Okay, but... If you're looking at, at writing, and writing is a form of art, mm -hmm. and you, you've you got two people 
who have both written an essay on the same topic. And one exclusively uses the passive voice and every single one of their sentences has five words in it. And the other one is very expressive and passionate and has better grammar and, and uses the active voice and you know uses commas in all the right place, then you can objectively say that one of those two papers is better than the other. You, you can, your point earlier was, was bang on, I think. You can say the quality is better, but someone can write an amazing essay about something and say nothing. They, they can gush for eight sides of A4. The other person can write a couple of paragraphs. They can do a, you know, a 15-minute video on something, but absolutely get to the heart of the matter and make some really astute points that make you reconsider everything you thought before. Okay. So I think, and you know, the only way you can put a number to that is how many words have they used and how how have they done things correctly, and that doesn't get into what art is. I think if we asked an art major this question, they would say yes because all of their art gets graded. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, ask the art teacher, right? It would be, yeah, yeah definitely, because that's my job. Right. Yeah. Whenever I think of Dead Poets Society, this is the thing that I think about these days. This is why the movie remains relevant to me, because I think about this all the time. Mm-hmm. If you can objectively measure art, or if it's just impossible. And pretty much, Matthew, you said like my thoughts beautifully. I agree with what you said yeah. that art is basically an experience and there you cannot rate an experience the same way that you would the mechanics of that experience. There's a mm. separation there. There's a divide that you can on one side of it I think that you can say something objective but on the other side of it it just is the experience that it is. And I don't know a, a lot of our culture I think these days has an unexamined assumption to it that there is a quality to stories that can be quantified and after you're done reading your ebook it will come up and ask you to rate it the same way that you would a lawnmower or you know a refrigerator (laughs) that you bought from amazon it's like how many stars would you give this and we need those things and and that protects the the end user of the story, the the audience. But I think that people assume that that means that there are good stories and bad stories. And in my mind, there are just experiences. And it's not, it's actually kind of harmful to art to think of it in this objective way that can be measured. And like Mr. Keating says, it's, it's excrement. Excrement. That's what I think of Mr. J. Evans Pritchard. We're not laying pipe. We're talking about poetry. How can you describe poetry like American bandstand? Well, I like Byron. I give him a 42, but I can't dance to him. <laughs> now, I want you to rip out that page. Go on. Rip out the entire page. You heard me. Rip it out. Rip it out. Go on. Rip it out. Tear it out. Get rid of it. Yeah. Stop thinking that way. Yeah, I've I, I've never looked it up. But is that book and that essay is it real? Is the idea of rating the perfection and importance it, of a poem? It is not real. No. Okay, that's good. I've it did it feel up. a bit hammered on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not real. I this conversation reminds me of that quote by uh, American writer Edmund Wilson. He said, "No two persons have ever read the same book." Mm. 
And I think that's pretty spot on because yeah. my experience with reading Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone is very different from your experience. And so it's, it's not the same. And so we can't, we can't qualify that. We can't rate that because it's different because we're human and we have our own things. One of, okay, so this art question is the one that keeps coming back to you, Alan, when you mm. watch this movie. Now, granted, I've only seen the movie once, but the question that I keep coming back to, at the end, after Neil has committed suicide, the boys are basically bullied by the headmaster and their parents to sign a document saying that it was Mr. Keating who made this happen, that he, you know, and I don't remember what the, de I don't even know if they said what the details were, but just basically that it's because of the way that he taught and, and all of the, the hogwash that he was planning in their brains, you know, kind of made Neil suicidal. Do you think the boys were right to sign that letter? Would you have signed it? I think yes and yes. I think it's really, really harsh, but in the world that they live where they have this very privileged access to this school with this history and education and everything that will afford them. They they don't want to risk anything of that privilege. And I can completely understand that situation. What about you, Alan? I think the movie definitely makes you feel like it is unjust. And they, you know, the other boys are calling him a fink. And, uh, and you definitely get the feeling he's a rat. And then to watch baby Ethan Hawke cry... It's like heartbreaking. You don't want that for baby Ethan Hawke because he's adorable. Yeah. Um, would I have signed? I think at their age, I definitely would have. And in a lot of ways, these boys are very fragile. They've been brought up in this school where it's all this very strict discipline and they, they are not good at doing their own thing just for like a, this brief time. It, I'm not even sure that this is over two semesters. It feels like almost one. You know, they, they do their own thing briefly and it goes terribly. And I don't think they have it in them to not sign. I don't think it was possible for them to stand up to the administration. Do you think that's because of the time they lived in? I, I feel like, Matthew, you were alluding to that a little bit, that in this world that they live in, in this privileged 1950s, you know, white boy prep school world, they felt they had no other choice. Do you th do you think it is because of the time? Do you think it would be different if this took place today? I don't know if this exists today. This school, this environment that lords its history and teaching in the style it has always taught in. I work at a university and very much we know we are in a competitive market and you have to develop and show that people who come out from the university have gotten quality to make people want to come to you again. And doing the same thing you have always done is not possible anymore. No, I, I, I'm trying to, to articulate really what I'm trying to ask. And, and this is coming from uh, Kate Evangelista on Twitter asked how different would the movie have been if it were shot today. And, and there are a lot of ways that it would be different because you're right, this, this setting doesn't exactly exist today. I think that there are still communities like this that value tradition above mm -hmm. all and, and where they came from. I mean, this is why we still have, you know, men becoming doctors because that's what their family has always done. Mm. You know, Go I mean, that, that's still a thing that happens. And 
But at the same time, we live in a society, in a world where it's okay to question authority Mm. most of the time. And it wasn't in 1959. You just didn't do that. And so I'm wondering, do you think that a group of 17-year-old boys today, if they were put in a position like this where, you know, they have to basically lie to go on with their life, do you think they would do that in order to not have to risk their life, their standard of living, or would they stand up for their teacher because that's the right thing to do? I think that there's always like a need for moral courage in society. And that's kind of what this question is really about. But I think that I don't know that it would be exactly the same circumstances. It, it could be something more like along the lines of online bullying or you know, if you were going to put it in a modern context, or maybe having something maybe a little bit more toxic or something like that and saying, well, women don't deserve this or that. And you need to sign on the dotted line that you agree with that. And then these boys have to make a choice of like, well, you know, because they want, (laughs) they say that God called and girls should be at the school. Like you maybe you can make a modern day story Mm. about that uh, and say girls belong Uh, At this school, they should have the same opportunities as everybody else. They should get the chance to grow up and network with all these important rich people because when we get out of this school, we're going to be buddies and we're going to give each other these opportunities that nobody else is going to have access to, especially women. And you can make a whole story about that and that, you know, they need to have the moral courage to stand up for the equal opportunity of uh, other people, regardless of their gender, and, uh, and see if they would sign on the dotted line. Maybe that would endanger their opportunities because there would be you'd have to open it up to a whole nother half of the population so in the competition for jobs maybe that makes things more competitive but it makes it better for everyone i don't know yeah very much if the film was the film itself was made today it would address issues of diversity even just in probably in the casting um, as well as having some issue within there about uh, sexuality, gender, race, something else going on with it. More so than the issue of these white guys, whether they think in a conformist or nonconformist fashion. Right. I do still think that Neil's storyline could happen today, of being mm. so, so overwhelmed by trying to live up to what your parents want and being afraid to speak up that it leads you to ultimately take your life. I oh, think yeah. that yeah. that could definitely yeah. still happen today. The rest of it like you said, I think it, it would be it would be a completely different setting and a, a different community. But I think I think that a lot of this movie could have still been done if it was shot today. Yes, very much when I was watching it this time. I, I did have a wonder of oh, is there an illusion here that he's actually gay and he's never going to be able to live the life he wants to live? You can mm, see he's already yeah. been forced into a job. Is he gonna be forced into a marriage and a, and a lifestyle? Right. The film doesn't really present that again. That's a a modern sensibility being presented on it. Do you guys think that the school was right, that Mr. Keating did have something to do with what happened with Neil, or were they just using him as a scapegoat? I think I can see steps that connect it, um, mostly because it leads into one of the bits that kind of throws me out of the film a little bit. Uh, When he's given his performance... Um, he gets this huge standing ovation and the other actors push him to the front of the stage to, to take the bow uh, on his own. And I kind of don't see that because his, his performance was a bit hammy and not that good. 
I can I can see a connection of yes, he could be a good actor because um, he's young, Doctor Wilson, um, <laughs> and, and that event, eventually, yes, he would actually be able to do, go and do this. But he's gone and done it too early without developing and learning, and so that's when it's been taken away from him. It bothers me that you would use his performance in that play as a way to say Keating pushed him because. I mean, this is a high school play of a Midsummer Night's Dream. Nobody in that production was good. <laughs> so, so how come he's the one who's pushed to the front? Why, why? Because he's the lead. He's the main character. He was the lead of the show. That's why they did that. I'm not sure that Puck is the lead of the show. I know they say that in the movie, yeah. but it's like, if you see the play, it's like, okay, well, that's nice that they told you that, Neil. That's, um, But, you know, Puck's the intro, the <laughs> outro. <laughs> He's okay, kind I of have the frame of the story, but uh, right in this world, yes. in, in the universe of of Neil, you know, they tell us that he is the main character, and they tell us that that he's really good, and 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 so I think we're supposed to just accept that. I, I don't think it's fair for us to question that when the movie is presenting it as that. Mm-hmm. There is a little bit of dissonance, like Matthew is saying, like when you have a story and you say this is the story about the greatest songwriter who ever lived. And then you get to hear that songwriter's songs. And then you're like, wow, these songs are not the greatest songs that have ever been sung. It's like, uh, sometimes it's better not to show <laughs> the the performance or whatever, because then it can kind of throw you out and create this dissidence that, that I think Matthew experienced when he watched the movie. I don't know if that's Mr. Keating's fault that will like... We, we threw you in there too early. I get, like Mandy's saying, canonically within the universe of the movie, the performance is amazing and uh, changes the hearts of everyone there. And even, I think even his father does like a little bit of a double take when he sees the response. And I think it actually hardens mm-hmm. his heart a little bit where he, he is kind of like, no, he will not be seduced by this applause. I will turn this around. I will make this right. Like it, all that praise actually makes him harder on Neil in the end, in my opinion. Hmm. But yeah, I can uh, say that. but I don't I don't know that if it's necessarily Keating's fault. I think I think he is definitely a catalyst in the movie for everything that these boys do. But I think that the boys themselves are responsible for their own actions, and I think that that's the point of the of the end of the movie. You know, when they're standing up on the desks. That's a moment where Todd and the rest of the club take responsibility for what they did because they were kind of forced to sign those papers, but that's their chance to say, I didn't mean it. And I will always carry what you taught taught me for the rest of my life to Mr. Keating. Yeah, they are still going to look at the world from a different angle from the other right. kids in the class who don't stand up. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm. Yeah, Keating obviously didn't blame them at all. Like he, he, he completely understood. Right. And I, I love that about him. You know, a a lesser human would have been upset and and would have probably had ill wishes for those boys, and he didn't. Yeah, it's and that's kind of heartbreaking. It makes you love him even more. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's like the whole thing is kind of ridiculously romantic when it comes to what a teacher is, you know, because you never see him filling out reports or, you know, like having to do parent teacher conferences or any of the dirty work that a teacher does. He just like does these amazing, you know, like we're going to go kick 
footballs and we're gonna talk about poetry and we're gonna you know march around in a circle and it's all gonna i'm gonna stand you in the lobby and whisper behind you it's gonna be amazing i'm gonna blow your mind and i think the teachers want to do that stuff but you just can't within within the institution so it's not very realistic in that way and so you know the way that it all ends up is also kind of ridiculous with these students standing on the desks but it is so beautiful and romantic and heartwarming and moving mm. that I just love it. Oh yeah, I mean I I cried solidly for the last 20 minutes of this movie. Oh. I As mean, you should. I was like sobbing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I stopped for a few minutes because I got so angry at at what they were doing <laughs> to the boys and and how they were blaming Keating, but then when he came into the classroom, I just started crying again and then it just kind of didn't stop for a little while, so yeah, it was it was definitely a beautiful movie. Yeah, that ending is incredibly evocative in, in, in the way it shows that they're looking with a different angle. They're looking at him with their head, heads held high and the impact that he's had on them. Right, and and just them ignoring the headmaster who's just screaming at them yeah. <laughs> to get down. And I, I liked it a lot. It was great. And like you say, Alan, we don't see any of the ordinary teaching stuff. Even, even the, the teaching that we do see... He's reading them poetry, but he's kind of reading them the best quotes and lines from each of the poems he's looking at. He's not mm-hmm. sort of talking about mm-hmm. the depth and construction and, and the the analysis you would expect. He's kind of doing the, the tumbler of poetry. Well, to be <laughs> fair, though, I mean, it's not like we saw the entire hour-long class. You know, we no. got to see like two minutes of the class each time. So yeah, that's true. I, I'm sure that there was actual teaching going on. You hope so, I don't think you? He even I, I says do. at one point, like, your essays are due tomorrow. So, you know, they, they do have assignments and stuff. But mm. Right. Yeah. And yeah. and like I said at the beginning, to these guys, English is not going to be an important thing to particularly learn, particularly English literature. Right. So he focuses on teaching it in a way that will actually help them for the rest of their life. So I can I can definitely appreciate that aspect of it. Awesome. And you can see that, too, like when he teaches. And, and at the back of the class, you have Nawanda back there, like, drawing breasts and not paying attention at all and then the way that he teaches just draws him out of that and out of his cynicism and he starts to pay attention and he really loves literature at the end so let's move on and talk about our favorite moments or things about the movie mine was when keating gets todd to do his poem because todd has this little arc where he's quiet he doesn't speak really he doesn't want to read out loud but you can see that this poem means something to him you see him sitting on his bed with all of these papers around him and he's just he's working so hard to write this poem but when the moment comes for him to present it in class he gets scared and he doesn't Mm -hmm. do it and Keating can see that Keating sees right through him and knows that he has something to say Mr. Anderson thinks that everything inside of him is worthless and embarrassing. Isn't that right, Todd? And that's your worst fear. I think you're wrong. I think you have something inside of you that is worth a great deal. And so he gets him up there and he gets his focus just on Keating so that he's not thinking about the rest of the room or any of these boys who might laugh at him. And he gets him to perform his poem, to speak his heart. Mm. And I just loved that. And yeah, he gets him to to deliver a poem of of actual genuine quality. It's it's a right because he can moment, see that yeah. Todd was capable of it. Mm. Yeah, yep. it's it's a, a fantastic moment, and 
it, it stands out in the rest of the film. When I, uh, I, I said I rented this on Google Play, they have a little trailer, but the trailer is basically that scene. It's the best scene in the movie, mm. in my opinion. Mm, I agree. I would agree too. Yeah, That poem, like you said, is actually really good. And that is one of those situations where, like you were saying before, that the performance in the play didn't really convince you, even though canonically it's supposed to be really good. I think that poem, it's supposed to kind of leave the class thunderstruck that this mm. quiet boy has this moment of pure poetry. And, uh, and I think it works. So it's good to dare that stuff in the writing and in the performance because you can end up with moments like that. Yeah, very much. And, and actually, that's a really nice example for my favorite thing of the film, and that's the cinematography, the, the style of the shooting of it. It's For a lot of the movie, the, the camera is kinetic. It's always moving around. And that scene particularly, the camera spins with them. It's, it's a, a lesser director or director of photography would have had stationary cameras and just cut to different angles. But they clearly have someone with handheld camera spinning around as Robin Williams and Ethan Hawke are spinning around as well. And you get this sense that they're the only things existing in that moment. But even for the rest of it, the, the camera's always moving. It's always taking in different aspects of whatever's going on. Except when the actors are generally moving. So the, the soccer scene, the camera is absolutely front on to them as they're kicking the balls down. And even when Robin Williams speaks at the beginning of the, the scene, when they first go to that moment, the camera doesn't cut to see him shouting. We are watching these boys reacting to his teaching style and what's going on and how well they are or aren't embracing it. I just think all the way through, it's it's just beautifully shot to, to uh, keep us in the point of view of these boys and understanding what they're going through in their arcs. I really enjoy it. There's that scene at the end, too, where they're getting up on the desks and the mm -hmm. camera is actually focused on the desk so that you see the shoes come up and you don't... Yes. It would have been a choice to go further back and see the entire body move up, but just to see those feet moving up is—it's uh, kind of iconic. Like when you look up clips from this movie, you'll you'll often see that, and it's a really strong visual choice, I think. So yeah, definitely the cinematography. Yeah. Yeah. After the first one or two get up on the desks, it doesn't matter who of the rest of them is doing it. It's just showing there's a lot of them standing up, mm -hmm. and you go, oh, they're there. Really, you know, he's impacted lots and lots of these boys. It's not just the one or two people whose stories we followed. The uh, director of photography is John Searle, John Seal, sorry, um, who he's done a number of completely random films, films that I wouldn't have thought of. Um, his big one is Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, which I don't think oh. of as a particularly, you don't go to it as an example of, oh, that beautiful shot and that beautiful way that's framed and so on. But other films like The Firm and City of Angels and Dreamcatcher, nothing that stood, stood out to me. Except that he came out of retirement to do the director of photography for Mad Max Fury Road, Ooh, which yeah. is one of the most beautiful films ever created. I, I said last yeah. week about 2001 being one of the most beautiful films. Well, you could s skip almost all of cinema in between and go straight to Mad Max Fury Road as here's another evolution in the way we shoot action, in the way we shoot profiles, and to show what different characters are doing at once. And, yeah, and it's this chap. Yeah. That is definitely on the list. That is one I'm, I'm excited to do someday. You, yeah, you should watch that movie one day. Because it's, it is, even if you don't like it, what Matthew's saying is, is very true. That it's just amazing to look at. Mm. Okay. Part of the reason why I love this movie so much when I was younger uh, and why it has stayed with me is the friendships in the story. When I was growing up, 
we moved around a lot. Like I was, I went to 13 different school systems from the time that I was in kindergarten until I graduated. So like I never had the kind of continuity of friendship that these boys have. And we didn't have this movie when I was growing up, but I can remember catching it on television and I always stopped if this was on TV and settled in to watch. And I was probably Mm. the only boy who watched this movie and was like, I wish that I could live in that oppressive fascist (laughs) school (laughs) with all these boys. Cause I just loved like all the little friendships, the, the way that Todd shows up and he's so shy and ashamed of himself and Neil is just like, come on, man, we're going to go do this thing. You, mm. it doesn't matter. Like you can, you're part of the group you're in and, uh, and Pitts and Meeks, how they're like constantly, you can tell that those two guys are best friends. Like they're in this other clique and they hang out with these guys. But if those other boys said, Hey, we don't want to hang out with you anymore. Pitts and Meeks would be together anyway. They're off building their little radio I love the part when they figure out that like, oh, if we hooked it up to the the copper cornice on the top of the school, then we could catch the radio signal. And they're like up there dancing to the music instead of, you know, holding that little handheld thing in the pathetic way that they are in the library. And uh, (laughs) just all the all the little male friendships were just like a total fantasy for me growing up. You would I would go from school to school and make friends, but it was the days before Facebook and social media. So when you moved away, there just <clears throat> was no way to keep in touch. And mm. so these friendships I could slip back into and it was, it gave a kind of continuity to things that, uh, that I've always loved. And every time I watch it, just, I just love the friendships. I, I totally get that. I was sort of the same as you. I moved around a lot as a kid. I think I, I did get stability from from sixth grade moving forward, but before that, I went to six different schools in three years, and some of those schools I went to more than once during that time uh, because I just kept getting shuttled back and forth between uh, my parents who had divorced, and so I was never in one place long enough to have friendships like in the movie, and so I, I'm right there with you, you know. I can't say that I wished I, I was in a boys prep school, <laughs> but I can say I wish I was in, in, in something similar to that. I absolutely get that feeling, you know, when I when I watch a movie like this, uh, because those friendships are so special. Definitely. Yeah, and I think one, one of my other favorite things in the film, actually, that we've not really touched on, but it's the performances that sell that aspect of it. I, I don't think for, for the actual characters, there is not a bad performance in this film. Everyone is really good at what they do. And they are, and they're, they're cast superbly. Obviously, there's lots of you know very, very middle class, quite attractive young white guys in this film, but they are all very, very good at it. And and you get different aspects of them. Whether one is very shy, one is very outgoing, one is uh, very quippy, that kind of thing. You you really get yeah. that from them. And it, even the adults, obviously, Ron Williams. Th- there was a thing that I read that it was when he started being allowed to improvise more that he really got into the role. But he's really good. The head teacher, you get the seriousness of it. And obviously, Kurtwood Smith, actually, as, as Neil's father, is... He's doing the thing that Kurtwood Smith does. He would go on it's to play... So bas- yeah, he'd play basically this role in that 70s show. Mm-hmm. So the guys in this film would be the age he, he plays in that 70s show 20 years later. <laughs> um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but he's basically playing the same role as the very severe father. 
Right. But he does that in everything. He, he even does that in Star Trek Six when he plays Federation president who just refuses to do anything and, and grumps at everyone. <laughs> I don't oh, think I've guys. ever seen him play something where he wasn't a grump. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. He's typecast. I am so okay. So we got the Star Trek reference. I am really close to bingo, you guys. I've got my bingo card here for PC <laughs> deprived. I need a Buffy reference. How are we gonna get? We already Buffy? did the Buffy reference. Did we we did the Buffy it? reference oh, a long time man. ago. Oh. Okay. <laughs> uh, carpe diem, because tomorrow you might be dead, is a direct quote from Buffy <laughs> in season one. Really? Actually. Actually, in the pilot, and welcome to the Hellmouth. Yes, she says. Do you it's think Willow. that that's a reference to this movie? I, you know, a lot of people say that it is. I don't know. I, I wasn't familiar with the phrase before Buffy, so for me, it's a Buffy thing. But I mm. know it's a standard phrase that people say. So that's I, don't, I don't know if it, if it came from Dead Poet Society or not. Fair enough. Matthew has no opinion on this. It's from Buffy. <laughs> I don't know. Um, uh, okay. <laughs> I, I knew of it from Buffy. I, I, I know the. They obviously say the word carpe diem in this, but it's carpe diem, gather ye roses while you, while you may. Yeah. yeah. Right. Which, which is used so successfully in uh, newsroom, of course. I do want to talk about one thing that actually did take me out of the story in this mm-hmm. movie. And it's related to something you just said, Matthew, where Robin Williams got to do some of his own improvisation and, <laughs> and, and stuff. When he did his Marlon Brando impression... But if any of you have seen Mr. Marlon Brando, know that Shakespeare can be different. France, Romans, countrymen, let me ass. He did Marlon Brando in The Godfather, which had come out before this movie was made, but had not yet come out when this movie was set. And so it completely, completely took me out of the story. And like, I actually paused it and started Googling just to make sure that Marlon Brando didn't always sound like that. And he did not sound like that um, in the quote that, that Robin Williams was uh, impersonating him from Caesar. And, and that just bothered me. But The Godfather is set in the 40s. So in the cinema world... Oh no! <laughs> there was this chap called Don Corleone who Keating met once. <laughs> okay, I'll, I will allow it. I will allow it. I can headcanon anything. <laughs> I am also surprised that Robert Sean Leonard did not go on to have a more lucrative career, because honestly, the only thing I know him from is House. Hmm. And I looked up his filmography after this because I was thinking he did such a fabulous job. I don't understand why he hasn't worked more. And I mean, he did do some stuff, but it's nothing that I'm really familiar with. And I'm a little surprised by that. I, I think he's more of a theatrical uh, performer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, so perhaps okay. that's just that he's, he's been in a long production or with a company for a while or something. Well, they don't tell you that on IMDb, so. <laughs> I right. Okay, is there anything else that we need to talk about uh, with Dead Poet Society? Only only a side reference that I keep calling it DPS, and every time it makes me think of damage per second. I, I, I need to stop being a gamer. I was time. also thinking that when I saw it. I was like, what is, oh, Dead Poet, okay, okay. <laughs> See, and it makes me think of TPS, which then makes me think of Oxygen. <laughs> so. It just made me chuckle every time I wrote it, so I, I kept doing it. <laughs> That's perfectly fine. So, Alan, do you have any 
recommendations besides Dead Poet Society, since we've already done that one, that you think I should add to my giant list of things I haven't seen? I've looked through the list. I'm not sure what you have seen. Like, I was kind of thrown off by all the Robin Williams movies that you knew. Uh, so I was like, oh, well, maybe she's seen some of this stuff. I, have you? So the big iconic movie that I that I saw missing from the 80s was Goonies. I don't know if you've seen that. I have seen Goonies. You've seen Goonies. Okay. That's Yeah, that's why it's not on the list. How about Labyrinth? And- I have seen Labyrinth. Labyrinth, good. Aww. That's good. You should see Labyrinth. Everyone yeah. should see Labyrinth. Hello. Yeah. Come inside, meet the missus. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Who, me? No, I'm just a worm. <laughs> okay. She would have gone straight to the center if she went that way. <laughs> uh, how about Cabin in the Woods, Joss Whedon movie? You've probably seen that, right? It's Joss Whedon. Of course I've seen it. Okay. Although I've been told... Oh, hang I on. Need- yeah, hang on. <laughs> It's Joss Whedon, of course. I've seen it. What about yeah, Much Ado About Nothing? Dollhouse? <laughs> what about Dollhouse? Yeah, come on. <laughs> oh, you guys are supposed to call me out on that. <laughs> Roll a bluff check. <laughs> <laughs> I have seen Kevin in the Woods, but I've been told that I need to rewatch it once I see some of the horror films on my list because it, it pays such homage to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we may do a bonus episode uh, one day. Uh, in Cabin in the Woods with Joss Whedon made me think of Fright Night, which was um, a favorite horror movie of mine when I was a kid. And then there's a remake of it, uh, which was done by uh, some Buffy alums and is very Buffy in its sensibilities. I don't know if you've seen either of the Fright Night movies. I have not. I am familiar with the remake because it stars David Tennant and I want to see it, but I have not yet seen it. Excellent, excellent Buffy-esque movie. Like, I would highly recommend that movie. Well, let's move on to my very favorite part of the show, where we do listener feedback. And one of the great things about our listener feedback this week is that we have listener feedback from Alan, who is a listener (laughs) and is on our show today. So why don't you go ahead and tell us what your feedback was? Well, you guys were talking about on Firefly uh, that you were surprised about the King James Bible surviving deep into the future. And it made me think of the Hindu Vedas, which are still around today, and they're estimated at being about 3,000 to 4,000 years old. And they're pretty much one of the oldest scriptures that are still used in an active religion in modern times. So pretty old, pretty old. Yeah, that's interesting. Thank you. I know uh, last time we had talked about the Quran um, as being older, too. And so this this is one that, that we didn't think of. So mm. I guess, you know, it it was wrong for me to question that the King James Bible would still be around in 500 years. You know, my I'm just going to go ahead and say I goofed you guys my bad. No, this is not being done to say you were wrong. It's, oh, it's no. interesting to find out new things. Right. We also got some uh, very interesting comments from number one Jen at Generosity uh, about Indiana Jones Raiders of the Lost Ark. She said that Indy gives Marion credit for her own agency. He doesn't see her as a damsel, so he tries to use that to his disadvantage. The disconnect happens because Marion's character wants Indy to rescue her. Um, And I'd never thought about it in that way, and I can completely see that. He knows of her capability and that she will be okay. And, And... she actually almost does get away with it in, in getting her captor drunk and trying to escape in her lovely white dress. Um, but yeah, he, he does see that and he goes, she'll be fine. She's very good at what she does. 
I'm going to go and move the arc around and then eventually give it to the bad guys. I had never thought about it this way. And, and this does make me reconsider my position a little bit, but only a little bit. Because I still think Indy is a really terrible human being. <laughs> if, if this is the case, he should at least have said that to her. You'll be fine. I know you're great. Do your thing. I'm going to be over there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> In a Harrison Ford accent. He sounds a little bit different from me. Just a little. <laughs> I mean, you I can't do a Harrison, Harrison Ford, Ford impression? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a second. I'm going to put a scar on my chin. Get in character. <laughs> Okay, guys, if you want to get in touch and give us your comments on this or any other movie we've discussed, you can use the hashtag PCDeprived on Twitter. You can also email us using podcast at eloquentgushing.com, or you can comment on this post on eloquentgushing.com. You can find each of us on Twitter. I'm at Mandy Kay. And I'm at Matthew Vose. Alan, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you and your work? Uh, I am also on Twitter, at Chipper Allen. Um, you can also visit my blog, alanallstrom.com. Uh, I've got all kinds of articles up there about my thoughts about pop culture, movies, video games. I've got some short fiction there as well. I am also the co-host of the Shadows and Shamblers podcast, uh, which is about the stars television show American Gods. And we kind of do the same thing over there that you guys do here. It is taking apart the show, revealing all the themes and deeper thoughts of American Gods. You can check us out every week uh, at shadowsandshamblers.com. I can't wait to check it out. It's going to be great. Yeah, really excited about that one. Mm. Yeah. Me too. (laughs) Terrific. Uh, please, everyone, remember to rate and review us on iTunes to help people discover the show um, and get more listeners and more feedback. As I always say, let us know if you do review us. We'd like to say thank you um, and give you a big hug and a kiss. For a kiss is always a gift. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back next week with another episode of Pop Culturally Deprived where we'll talk about Jaws. Until next time, I'm Andy Kay. And poetry, beauty, romance, love, these are what we stay alive for. Pop Culturally Deprived is an Eloquent Gushing production. For more information, visit eloquentgushing.com or find us on Twitter at Eloquent Gushing.